Hi, I'm Sage Latour. I'm here with Adam Blinkensop, and this week, another question. What games should I have played? Yes. What? How can we get the best historical overview of general RPGs? How can we get somebody conversant in RPGs? How can we keep people aware of kind of the breadth of the hobby? Conversant right? was really the, the point that I hinged on. I mean, I, I feel like I get into this conversation a lot with coworkers and stuff where they realize I'm into RPGs, and figuring out the common ground there, figuring out uh, how to be conversant, how to discuss these things, where they're coming from. Sometimes I, I almost want them to ask this question, like, which games should I have played, so that now we can have more touchstones and talk about things more directly. Yeah, which leads to your lead-off. Which leads to my lead-off, uh, <laughs> d and I, I had to put it on there because... I was answering this question as if I was talking to some random person, not some, I, I can't assume anything. So I made no assumptions, and in that case, I have to mention D&D. &D. There's, there's really no way around saying that you need some understanding of D&D, &D, ideally some different versions of D&D, &D, to be able to talk about RPGs, especially where they are today. Um, we don't really have a, a separate tree of development that isn't based off of D&D &D in some way. And so... You want to be able to trace things back kind of as far as you can go. The further you can go on that, the more you can see those branches branching out, uh, which is the really wonderful part. And plus, it is just a great game uh, across many of the editions and many of the adventures. I guess there's a few few outliers there. But in general, I can I can pretty unreservedly recommend, like, yeah, D&D is a lot of fun. You're going to have a great time, and you're going to learn so much about where RPGs come from. Yeah, D&D is definitely foundational to the hobby, but I left it off my list. I figured that most of the people listening to us have probably played some sort of D&D. Uh, if you haven't, please go play D&D. It's a great game. <laughs> so um, where did you start at? My first actual game of D&D was 3.5. Uh. Um, I actually bought the 3.5 books back before I had any kind of group, and I would just write up uh, scenarios and, and, and random adventures mm -hmm. and screw around, but I didn't actually get to play for a long time. So I joined a group with eight or nine people. Mm -hmm. So that was my first D&D experience was monster group, yep. 48 hours at a time. Ooh. It was wonderful. That's, that's weird. Uh, that's a wonderful place to start, but that's got to give you... <laughs> Definitely a, into the deep end for yeah, RPGs, yeah. When that's your, your for foundational experience, that's a weird place to start. And uh, it, was, it was with a group who'd been playing already for like a decade. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I started and everybody's figuring things out and here's our first characters and nothing's really happened yet. It's I started in there deep into a campaign and all sorts of stuff is going on. And I believe I actually built that character not at level one. Like we uh -huh. I, so I was I, you know. Wow. I only had my gaming knowledge to, to drive on. It was really weird. Yeah, I got started a little earlier, 3.0. Well, right at the beginning of 3.0. Like, I bought the books as they came out because they, they did that weird staggered release. Right. Uh, and because I only had the player's handbook to start with, only the, the little monster kind of supplement they did in the back because they knew it was going to be so long until you got monsters. <laughs> uh, so my first adventure was sending my brother into a... I think it was a 30-foot by 30-foot room with a cobalt in every square. <laughs> uh, and I was like, this is how you D&D. &D. Let's see how it works. Um, and that wasn't the most interesting. Uh, and then we, we rapidly grew from there. Uh, yeah. I, think, I think their modern adventures have gotten more and more. And, and, and now you get, you get the, 
you get the books and they come with an adventure in them. Yeah. So you can at least run that and get more of an idea about how to work. Yeah, there, there's been a lot of developments in just how you get people to play immediately. Right. Uh, and that's actually kind of one of the things that I, I wrote in my notes here about D&D as an option. Um, there's kind of different periods of D&D. Like if I had to broadly, I mean, one one suggestion is play D&D. Uh, and if you have to choose one, probably fifth edition, but maybe talk more. We can figure something out. But if you've got more time, I start to break it up first into like a early, mid, late period kind of thing. Like... Fourth and fifth is late period, two and three and associated stuff, probably mid period. Moldve, basic, uh, advanced, uh, the white box, like all of the huge number of early stuff is early. And there's really good reasons to pay, play each of those, actually. But if I had to, if I can recommend one, Probably fifth edition. If I can recommend three, one from each of those groups. <laughs> if I can recommend as many as I want, just play them all. Yeah, already. yeah, yeah. Spend your next twenty years playing all of all possible D and D editions. That does not sound like a bad way to go. Actually, <laughs> in some ways, I feel like uh, this podcast asking questions about RPGs. We come back to D and D so often, and it's actually kind of a fun challenge. Uh, every time I think, well. D&D is a good answer here. Do I still have things to say about D&D? And the answer is always yes. It's, it's huge. Yeah, there's so much to D&D. It's just a major part of the hobby. And then, so, such a major part of the hobby to the point where I don't know if I would recommend 5th as my D&D to cover RPGs mm-hmm. topic. Because 5th, you know, the the hobby emerges from D&D and then feeds back into it to the point where 5th really, you know... it. It feels like D&D, but it also feels like a whole bunch of other stuff. Sure. And I think, like, one of the biggest things that is D&D at its core is the idea in advance that you are going to die at any possible moment. Mm-hmm. And that serious fear for your character's life uh, and the idea of exploring the dungeon and that being kind of the primary idea, a primary way that you're interacting with the game, I think that... It does it better than most games because we've we've moved away from oh yeah you're gonna have to write up four character sheets this time because you're gonna die every yep. few minutes uh, that doesn't happen in modern games because we make them like games I, not very often anyways <laughs> I mean we make them both more like games in that we uh, like have learned from modern games that it kind of sucks to to be out of the game halfway through and sit right. there for the rest of it but they're also less like games in that there's a little less uncertainty there. The, oh, you could win or lose kind of thing Mm -hmm. isn't there as much anymore. Uh, Fifth edition, we've had a group going for a while. We still, I don't think, have had a permanent death. I guess we've had one, but that's because the person left the the group. Like, they they couldn't play anymore. Um, They died by coincidence. They died by coincidence. It it was tragic. (laughs) Uh, That, I think, is a really good point, and I think it points out where... D&D is such a broad thing. I still stand by fifth because I think that it gives you the most uh, touchstones to the most kind of D&Disms. Like, sure. Yeah, you, it's true. If you want to get an overview of D&D in general, fifth is really good for that. Yeah, and D&D in particular, the tropes of D&D, I guess. Uh, I mean, you're, you're going to miss out maybe on some of the 10-foot pole kind of stuff, some of the, you know standard dungeoneering procedure kind of stuff, depending on which way you take 5th edition. Mm -hmm. But you're going to get your magic missiles, your crazy monsters, you're going to get rests, uh, and you're going to get HP, and you're going to get hit dice. uh, And hit dice, like that that's something that 
Otherwise, you had to go back a ways for hit dice to really mean what you think hit dice mean. Uh, so yeah, I, I like 5th edition just as a way of getting you as many touchstones of D&D and as back to package. And it, it's an easy jumping on point. I agree that earlier D&D, uh, I think, can actually be a stronger sell and can teach more interesting things, maybe. Uh, and things that are further out from what you're going to find in other games. But if I had to recommend one, I'm, I'm still going to go with 5th. Yeah, speaking of player elimination, uh, my, my first pick is Dread. Mm-hmm. Um, dread being just weird. Uh, you, you tell people, especially people that know anything about RPGs, you tell people that you're going to play one where uh, the Jenga Tower is the resolution mechanic and, and you're going to get a lot of strange looks. But I think, I think it's part of what's made the hobby really interesting more recently mm-hmm. is the idea that resolution is not about some kind of simulation-y uh, how good am I with a sword and how many times do I have to swing it you know, mechanic. It's it's really about, you know, where are we now in the scene, in the narrative, and where are we going to be soon, and what is the, how does the tension ratchet up, and how do I tell a good story, and how does everybody get involved in that good story? And and Dread makes that, you know, a physical, tactile thing uh, sitting there on the table. You see that tower go up, and that tension is going up. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and it's not just the tower. Like, as as somebody running the game, you're ratcheting up the tension in the story, but it just happens kind of naturally as part of playing the game, um, which which leads to much more interesting ways of thinking about story games, role-playing games, where you don't have to start from the position of, okay, I need to write down everything that these characters can do so that I can come up with the rules for them, or I need to draw all of the positions on the map so that we understand you know, this kind of tactical situation, you can much go much more freeform as far as, you know, what's going on, what's going to go on next, mm-hmm. uh, how do we move from here to there? Well, I like the to think of that often as um, more direct communication. I mean, the thing that I, I've run into years and years of in D&D is I have an idea in my head of what the, you know, how this room is laid out and how it works. And then I put that onto graph paper and because of some mismatch between, you know, I forgot that you have an extra 10 feet of speed or something, mm-hmm. that room isn't actually the way it was in my head mm-hmm. because we had to translate it into these kind of absolute terms and then translate that back into your head for what can I actually do here. Yeah. Whereas uh, when you're doing something like Dread and you're describing the, the actual situation, not necessarily the physical details, you can say, oh yeah, uh, he's just out of your reach, as opposed to, oh, he's 10 feet away. Oh, wait, no, you have a glaive? Oh, wait, wait sorry, 15 feet. Yeah. Uh, like, there's there's important things there that you can communicate more directly when you're talking to people, as opposed to trying to talk to details and let the people then make sense of them. Yeah, and there's much less delay between I want to do something and it's going to happen or it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was playing a game over the weekend at a, at a wargaming convention called Skies Above the Reich, which is uh, basically German fighter planes attacking bombers. It's amazing. Check it out if you have a chance. Uh, but it's prototype now, so whatever. Anyways, one of the pieces of the game was... You fly up against the bombers, and there is a question as to how many hits do you take, how many hits do the bombers take, you know, what else is happening. And they did that in this particular case with an event card. You flip the card, you look it up, like each card has its own particular table, and Mm -hmm. then potential event. 
And I think that that might have been the only possible weak spot. I love the game otherwise. But the only reason that that felt a little weak was because it took me a few seconds to mm-hmm. find the spot. Like, the designers, they found the spot immediately because they've been looking at these cards forever. Yep. Um, and I think that I could get there, and then the game would get much better. But in that few seconds, I was not this German fighter plane, and I could see flying through the squad, and I could see the flak cannons, and I could see all this stuff going on. And I'll, that was the rest of the game, as I see all of this stuff. But then when I'm flipping that card, it's like, okay, hold on, I'm switching types, modes of thought. Mm-hmm. And now I have to, okay, counting up that, counting up that, Okay, now I know what's going on, and now I'm back to flying my plane. Exactly, and that's the thing that we run into a lot in the uh, kind of detail-oriented description of places, is your character can take that all in and make sense of it in a way that you can't necessarily, at least not without more work. Uh, it's the uh, We get into this a lot in uh, modern games with like firearms and stuff, mm-hmm. where you know if I try and tell you exactly how far away they are, yeah. and then you try and turn that into, can I shoot them? Right. That requires a lot more like consulting the system, and then maybe saying, oh wait, that doesn't seem right, because there's always a gun nut at the table who's going to say, oh no, no, no. That range, that effective range is 800 feet, thank you very much. Exactly. Whereas if, uh, you know, we just communicate directly to each other, like he's he's about at your maximum range, you, you think you can get him, but you're, you're going to be at a minus two penalty or whatever, we actually just communicated more effectively in a lot of ways mm-hmm. than setting the exact distance. Yeah. Uh, and then we can work back to exact distance if that becomes like an important thing, but... It tends to not. It tends to not be. Yeah. Uh, I, I support your Dread choice. That's a good choice. And it's October, so we have to talk about have Dread. have to talk about Dread. We are it obligated is, to talk about you Dread. Know, that's, that's our, put that sign up, our zero days since we last talked about Dread. Um, <laughs> and, and D&D. We're, we're hitting all our favorites. We're actually just going to recap all our favorite games. And uh, Yeah. Well, my second one, uh, coming at the heels of this convention, and mm-hmm. is kind of a big catch-all. Uh, you should play legacy or campaign board games. Ah, interesting. Um, legacy games, you know, Risk Legacy, Pandemic Legacy, whatever, are people outside of our hobby's way of trying to emulate the things that are best about the role-playing game hobby. Mm-hmm. It's like our our stuff is amazing because of this long-term actions matter, you know, games that we play, just super long-form games. And other... You know, board games do not do that very well, yeah. uh, and and the legacy games that we've that we've played that we've seen uh, try and do as much as they can to to emulate this good long term feel, uh, but I think they fall flat in a lot of the ways that that role playing games don't. Uh, you know, the Risk Legacy has fifteen games in it, and then it's you know you're no longer making decisions that will change the game in the future. Uh, legacy games in general have to start you off at a good competitive position, and so they most of the time are going to reset a bunch of your decisions every game, um, which was, uh, I think, uh, Sam Healy on uh, the Dice Tower. That's his big bother thing about Seafall, is that I did all this work to build all these buildings, and then they all got torn down or something between here and the next game. Um, And then you go to war game campaigns, and they just take a whole bunch of your decisions away from system to system, because... You know, either you go the full simulationist route and say, we're going to spend two hours figuring out, you know, where exactly you took that wound, Dwarf Fortress style, or you just took that random chip pull, I got shot in the engine, and now my character is dead, and that didn't, you know, I didn't get to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But they at least have the 
well, you could play this game for 16 years, and I'll keep track of your pilot stats that entire time. Yep. Um, and that's a really important thing, going back to my first choice of D&D. Like, yeah. that's part of where D&D grew out of is... Uh, the the kind of inklings in wargaming that you could persist things on and you combine that with a bunch of other uh, innovations that came around about the same time and you end up with D&D. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Plane of the World goes into a lot of detail on this where this confluence of ideas of, oh yeah, like persistence and um, damage mitigation and damage absorption and... Uh, the kind of arbitrated war games where somebody makes a judgment call, all that comes together and all of a sudden it, it all clicks. And individual uh, actors as important, uh, unique statted figures. Yeah, um, and war gamers still do this. Like, uh, there's a ton of effectively role-playing games mm-hmm. that don't show up in the RPG hobby. Like, I played a, a World War II flying ace game where you're controlling this, this little element of, of, of lead pilot and, and wingman, and the people in those games have pilots that have existed for a long time, and if you get shot down, your pilot could die. And there are serious... There's some serious entity between various people at the table yep. uh, just because your pilot has shot down my pilot the last three games, and I'm coming after you, mm-hmm. uh, which, is, which is really cool. And, yeah, and I think that there's there's an interesting thing there um, because some campaign games don't capture that as much. I would say that a lot of the the kind of mainstream games that I think of as campaign games, like uh, Descent, um, yeah. Star Wars, uh, oh, what's the suffix on that one? Um, Rebel oh, Assault. Yeah. Yeah. Imperial Assault. Imperial Assault. Oh, one of the sides is Assault and the other. Something, <laughs> something about that. Uh, those campaigns to me feel much less campaigny, um, and that's actually something that when we were playing through uh, Pandemic Legacy, it felt more like a campaign game mm-hmm. in that sense than uh, a legacy game or like the war game campaign where your individual choices can really stack up and matter a lot. Right. Uh, instead, it felt more like playing through this week's adventure. A little bit of carryover, but... uh, Watching this week's episode, almost. Yeah, exactly. Um, And, I mean, it was season one. Season two's coming out. Uh, Boxes were at Essen. But I I couldn't get into it. Um, Whereas we've played through all of Risk Legacy. We're currently starting Seafall. Mm -hmm. And uh, both of those have clicked on a different level for me. But, yeah, looking at how... Looking at other hobbies manage the session-to-session, game-to-game changes is is really interesting. We have a lot of tools that we can steal from them. And I like that you brought in something outside of RPGs because that's actually a really important element. You know, if we if we want to understand RPGs, it doesn't stop at things with dice and pencils and paper at a table. Oh, yeah. um, though that actually describes a lot of war games too. But it, you know, it doesn't <laughs> the, the lines get blurrier and blurrier and even when you can draw like, you know, an electronic RPG, there's actually still a lot to learn there. Um, yeah. That said, I went all with pretty traditional answers. Uh, so my number two, uh, I wanted to go with something kind of out of the early indie uh, scene. Um, you might call it the Forge scene from the, the website where a lot of this development happened. Um, and I thought about Sorcerer. That's okay, kind of I like a... Curious. I, so Sorcerer, I actually skipped over partially because I feel like it's almost too big a deal. Um Especially with the the recent re-releases that kind of have a running commentary through the book, I feel like Sorcerer almost, uh, if I was recommending, what I'm recommending for is getting these ideas and seeing where this development happened, not necessarily 
uh, kind of the biggest names, even right. though I, I did start with D&D. &D. Uh, so instead, I went with Troll Babe by Ron Edwards, um, which is 2002. Uh, it's a very interesting game that actually, to me, hits a huge number of early Forge things um, all in one game, all at once. Uh, it's a very compact package to introduce a whole bunch of ideas that you'll be then conversant with a huge range of other uh, indie games that grew up out of the years after it. I mean, I would say that you have to go several years after it until you see things that aren't kind of originating from Troll Babe to some degree. Um, I, I'm amazed this game doesn't get more love. I think partially it's because the name and the conceit. Um, so the name is Troll Babe because you play a troll babe. Uh, you, you play troll women basically wandering around... Um, kind of getting into trouble and uh, it, it's kind of the wandering adventure thing but you're an outcast from society because you're a troll babe um, and you have magic and fists and stuff um, it, it revolves on the central dice mechanic where you only have one stat and depending on what you're doing you're trying to roll over or under or equal to um, did it come pre-pendragon no. Or is it post-Pendragon? It's got to be post-Pendragon. Because Pendragon's got a similar thing going on, even though they're not really that, They're not that really related. Um, yeah, so Pendragon does also have a, uh, a paired stat thing, but it has several more of them, and they are more directly paired. Uh, so Pendragon's stats are um, your emotional stats there uh, that are things like... Um, Chased or uh, I forget what the opposite. They're virtues. They're virtues and and counter and opposites. Vices, more Vi or less. Yeah, yeah, effectively, depending on your character. Which means, like, unlike many role playing games, especially of the time, uh, the role play, the the non I'm hitting you with swords stuff, is actually represented on your sheet, yeah. and you know. Games didn't used to do that very well. Yeah, and uh, I think for Troll Babe, the interesting thing is it is actually your ability to like hit things with stuff that is paired up this way. Right. Um, Pendragon pairs those things because they are kind of obviously opposites. Uh, you know, if you're very vengeful, then you probably aren't as just. I think that's one of the pairs. Yeah, and if you want to do a just thing, it's going to be much harder for you. It's going to be harder for you to do, and so the pairing is kind of um, a little more obvious because the the... The two name it's kind of just one stat with two names, mm -hmm. uh, whereas Troll Babe uses it as a way of um, doing a really quick and easy character creation. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it's actually just a assign a this many points mechanism. to this one and this many points to this one. Uh, how good do you want to be at magic, basically? How good do you want to be at like physical fighting? And then uh, basically talking with people. Um, and so the, the way that it approaches that, it's not so much that this pairing those things up as opposites is really amazing because there's there's the idea that you could have a character who is better uh, at both of those. Like, there's there's no reason that those two things have to be opposed. The really nice thing is that it makes uh, a interesting decision super easy to make. Yeah. Um, because in some ways it's an easier decision to make than uh, both of these stats start at three and add... And play pay points, yeah. Yeah, like, instead it's just choose one number... And you're you're set. Mm -hmm. um, and then there there are a few other things that play into this that can give you rerolls, and uh, of course there's circumstantial modifiers and all this stuff. Like there, there's there's a fair amount of else going on there. Um, it gets into stake setting a lot, which is um, a very forgy idea. A very forgy idea, uh, and it's interesting because I I really feel like at this point it's 
kind of past its prime. It was an important idea to learn the idea of stake setting as a... Which you should talk about more. Oh, yes. Of course I should talk about it more. So stake setting um, in Troll Babe is basically when you go on these adventures, there's kind of an explicit stake that's been set uh, of, you know, will... Oh, man, I'm going to have a... I hate trying to come up with examples on the fly, but something like, uh, will this village uh, accept you, or are they going to run you out of town? Um, these are these are microscope questions come out of this, and uh, you know, I believe kind of the dungeon worldy and apocalypse worldy. Uh, make sure you don't answer these questions. Come up with these questions. Thing comes kind of out of this idea. Yeah, that comes out of it a little bit. Um, and uh, burning wheel, or well. More Torch Baron stuff, uh, where you're con- you kind of set what can come out of a conflict. Right. That's that's stake setting on a, a more direct level. But it's um, like it's like deck building a couple of episodes ago, where we talked about it's not really you don't make a deck building game anymore. You make a game, and it might have deck building in it. Exactly, uh, and I, I even feel like in some ways it's that the idea of stake setting isn't the right way to to look at it anymore. Like it was a very uh, kind of first-generation approach to, okay, when rolls happens, uh, something needs to matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and something needs to matter in the game. And uh, this, in some ways, I feel like is a very V1, nail-on-the-head kind of approach. Well, like, well, if we're going to adventure, something has to matter. We're going to say what matters, and we're going to, like, explicitly say it. And that's that's a really useful tool, because it's direct. You hit the nail on the head. Like, there's a reason that hitting the nail on the head is a good thing. Uh, but it's also just so direct that sometimes it can feel a little more... Gamey. Gamey. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we set that this session we were going to decide this. Um, there's a, a game that uh, I believe has never been released fully, um, and at this point it's been long enough, I, I kind of doubt it will. Um, Princip- Prin- Principia? Principia? Principia. Tony Dowler, um, which took this to uh, kind of your playing a... a alternate history, basically, um, kind of Renaissance period, and you're explicitly, as a group, setting questions that you want to answer through play, uh, like, can uh, women have positions of power? And through play, you actually eventually resolve this, and it becomes like a set thing for the rest of your game. Whichever way you resolve it, for the rest of your game, you have to abide by that. Um, and basically, the resolution mechanics give you ways to kind of push the question one way or another, um, which is really cool. Like, it creates some really cool moments, and you have that great feeling of kind of creating history and everything. But it's, again, kind of a very nail on the head. Like, you're you're very clearly gaming it. Um, and I think that other... We're seeing some more systems these days that uh, engage those questions in a way that isn't as direct, that gives you... Um, a bit more of a kind of holistic approach that lets you interact more with the questions as opposed to saying, like, okay, these are our stakes. Let's figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that if you're going to be conversant, uh, Troll Babe is a really nice, compact package, and it's great fun to play. I'm not recommending anything here that I would say, oh, just play this so that you can... Uh, <laughs> I didn't include Cinnabar uh, or something like that, which is notable for being possibly the worst game ever. Um <laughs> It is not worth talking about anymore. Yeah, it. it but uh, I like find the picture of the raccoon with a bazooka, and you've basically got the best part of the game. I like. I like that your list is kind of scanning through, uh, kind of the historical examples of of these games as time goes on. You know, the D and D, the the Forge games. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm excited about your next one. My next one is that you better play a hack that you designed. 
Oh, that is a fantastic answer. Because a lot of our community is designers. Yes. Right? And it's hard not to be a designer when one of the biggest roles in the game, generally a GM, is going to have to make game design decisions on the fly continuously for most of the session. Because mm -hmm. none of these games have enough rules and nobody has the mind to hold them that will say what to do in every situation. So you have to make those decisions. And making, building hacks, building changes, like you're playing D&D &D 4 and you want to add some crazy rule because you think it'd make the game better, like, go for it. Those are, those are the interesting things that push this hobby forward into, into cool new places, right? That's a really smart idea. And I think uh, it's interesting because I feel like once you've done that, it also, at some point, opens up... Um, a desire, kind of grass is always greener desire, to go back to just being able to play games. I've been in this mode a lot recently where um, I mean, we play a lot of games together with board games, uh, like with Seafall. We've actually been actively trying to not critique the game during play. Right. Because once you get so far down the, the designer rat hole in RPGs or board games or whatever, you find yourself always doing the analysis during the game as opposed to just getting to sit back and play a game. Right. Uh, and I think that's actually one of my favorite things. These days it's usually um, either our kind of current approach to board games or uh, games that I end up playing at conventions that are being run by, like, another designer. Because um, if it's my own stuff, then I'm critiquing my own stuff. Uh, right. It's really nice to just sit down and... You're not trying to find what's wrong. You're not trying to find what's right. You're not trying to pick apart, you know, oh, your character sheet right here is, oh, I was confused by this. <laughs> right. Like, that is, we were actually talking just before the podcast began about um, the way design works. Often you get feedback and you feel like you have to address it, even if in some ways the best thing would be to say, well, you know, this only came up once. It was kind of bad, but it only came up once. We don't need to fix it. Whereas when you're always in the design mindset, that comes up and you say, well, how do I fix this? And there's probably a way, but is it really worth uh, building that much more structure around your design? Yeah, I, I played a ton of Down in Flames. And it was my first time that that World War II Flying Ace game. And it was the first time that I'd ever played it. And so getting into the game, you get this... I had this automatic designer hat on it, and which is a horrible thing mm -hmm. when you have the developer standing right next to you, yep. uh, because they've looked at this game forever. Like Chris knew about this game in '92 when it came out, so he knows everything in and out. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm trying to figure out how this game works, and you know, how do these cards work, and how. Does... And the games where I was in that mode were the least satisfying games. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I came back and played in the tournament and promptly lost and. Uh, played a couple of other just little skirmish games and let myself just go yep. because I hadn't eaten very much or slept very much. So there's no, <laughs> no use thinking. Those were those were awesome. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I've had the same experience, uh, especially around conventions. Uh, I usually find some after hours or before hours or whatever game with somebody that I, I like a lot and I don't get to see a lot. And uh, just being there to, to have fun. Uh, you know, when you're... The designer hat can go on so much of the time and it becomes even when it should be just my fun game night, it's easy, you know, we're we're sitting around playing a game and everybody is a designer to some degree. Uh, I mean, for my paying group, pretty much literally, everybody has published <laughs> work. Um, so it it's really easy to get into always critiquing everything and not just enjoying the game. And I think it's important to have made something and learned that critiquing process because uh, it gives an awareness of... 
This is am a I, hard process. Yeah, it's a hard process, and it, it gives you yourself an awareness of, am I critiquing right now, or am I just going to live with it, and who cares? Right, because these, these are games, right? In the end, uh, you know, you want to play a game to hang out, to have fun, to mm-hmm. maybe learn something cool, um, to just generally... To, to be able to do something that's that's kind of kind of spend some time in, in a hopefully useful way, yeah. um, and you know I, I just think if you if you have done some rules changes if you have made a couple of hacks if you have a couple of house rules for D and D there's a lot more of an appreciation for the work that goes into the design and the work that goes into deciding that you should stop mm-hmm. because which is the hardest part of oh, any always. design right. Yeah. So speaking of uh, things that are easy to critique, my last one, uh, I actually, I really drew a blank for a while because I felt like I had hit two major pillars that I wanted to totally. establish. And so I wanted to um, look for, for another pillar somewhere. Uh, and I realized there, there was quite a few. I thought about um, going with, there's uh, a lot of interesting kind of European RPGs coming out recently. Um, stuff like uh, Mutant Year Zero um, and uh, the French game that I'm thinking of, um, but drawing a blank on, uh, Estrin, Shadows, Shadows of Estrin, um, that it are coming from a slightly different design space. It's interesting to see them out there, but I couldn't quite go with them because uh, I I still don't know how that's going to play out. If I'm if I'm really going for conversant in RPGs, I'm I'm not sure that that's a strain that needs to be there yet. It's nothing worth exploring, and both those games are quite cool. I totally recommend checking them out. Um, but I I don't know quite. It's their place, <laughs> right? Uh, so I ended up with the biggest pillar that I could see still not covered, uh, which was actually Vampire. Nice, yeah. Uh, which I I have a mixed history with, uh, as, as many designers do, actually. Um, so this one is kind of interesting because Adam was asking where I'm going to go next. I kind of took a historical approach. Well, now we're ju- jumping back around because a lot of uh, Forge game design was uh, in reaction to Vampire in various ways. Uh, so Vampire uh, is... One of the largest RPGs, historically at least. Um, it, it isn't quite as big a factor now, but they still actually put out stuff that, that does pretty fantastic numbers through Kickstarter. Um, and it hit the scene in a way that uh, has kind of made an indelible mark. Um, the combination of style and an emphasis on uh, story and an emphasis on a particular um, genre all really resonated and then the game design is kind of still a little off to the side. A lot of the Forge was in some ways taking the promise of what people could see in Vampire and um, finding different ways to get to that. The, right. the tools that Vampire had to do it were not quite working for a lot of people. Um, on the other hand, they also work great for a lot of people. I, I am not one of the people who actually dislikes Vampire all that much. Um, my main problem with it has always just been that uh, there's so many ways to take Vampire, kind of like D&D. When you sit down to play, getting everybody on the same page can be really tough. Right. Um, and depending, like, there are a lot of games that end up being very DM-dependent. Yeah. Um, and I think a, another big piece of Forge and, and stuff that's emerged from it is trying to make things 
a little less DM dependent. Mm -hmm. um, like taking things that used to be DM advice that would come in the Dungeon Master's guide, right? And maybe you'll read this stuff, but it's not really the rules yeah. and making it into part of the rules. Yeah, and I, I think that that's uh, something that Vampire never quite did for the most part. Um, there was a lot of, there's actually a lot of nice little kind of feedback cycles in there where, uh, I mean, to explain the game a little bit, you're, you are playing as a vampire, and uh, it's very much the kind of um, gothic tragedy kind of vampire of, you know, your, your humanity's lost to you, you have to prey on people to survive, uh, and isn't this horrible? Um, but it's also kind of awesome. You're powerful and sexy and uh, probably wearing, like, leather and chokers and stuff uh, because this was the 90s um, for at least parts of some of the editions. Uh, oh, it's eternally the 90s. It's eternally it's for, always for the vampire, 90s. Vampire and for eternal Portland. 90s. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that the... The design that came out of that is really important, and I think that in a lot of ways the game doesn't get quite the credit that it deserves. Sure. Um, it, it is not as much of a pillar in modern gaming, uh, and I, I kind of wish that it still was. Um, it deserves a place in the conversation, if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wanted to bring it up. I think we've talked about it a little bit before, but I thought it was an important place to go with explaining where gaming has been and how it got to where it is now. Yeah. And while we, while we unfortunately have a, a little bit of a shorter show because of technical difficulties today, uh, I do want an honorable mention the jazz standards of Burning Wheel and, and Apocalypse World and maybe even GURPS if you want to go crazy in Microscope. Um, dogs in the Vineyard was yeah, dogs right on the cusp for me. That, that are just worth playing because they're amazing. And, and because if you want to talk to somebody who's deep into the hobby, like those are going to be common touchstones with mm -hmm. a lot of people. So. Yep. Yeah, uh, and then there's things, uh, again, in kind of the historical realm, like Traveler, um, oh, yeah. Hero Quest, actually, would be a good one. Uh, any of the, the basic role-playing stuff. Uh, th there's lots of ways to approach this question, which actually made it one of the toughest ones when I, when I threw this one out there. I thought it was giving us kind of a softball. Uh, <laughs> and the problem was trimming the list down. We could probably oh, yeah. just go on and on about all the things that you might want to know if you really want to be able to take on RPGs as a field. Yeah. Uh, but then again, that's kind of this entire podcast. Right. Uh, hopefully, hopefully we're giving you the master's degree. Yeah. This, this is the, the graduate level course in, <laughs> in at least uh, the corners of role-playing games that we know. I think the, the interesting <laughs> right. part is there's always more. Oh, uh, man, yeah. yeah. It's, it's when you go, start going international that I feel like that I've lost a bunch of knowledge. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm playing a bunch of Japanese war games, mm -hmm. uh, which are amazing. And like micro games, you know, Love Letter, that kind of thing came out of Japan. Uh, they have a different way of approaching uh, war game design in particular that's much simpler than the way that war games came out of the U.S. So mm -hmm. it tends to be really cool. We'll have to find some time to play this. I'm, I'm curious about these games now. Sometime. Not that micro. But yeah. <laughs> Well, until next time, this is Adam and Sage, uh, and this has been another question.